So we are in the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Soon take place. You know, we studied this, we've talked about it. That phrase, soon take place, is in taxi. In taxi, in the Greek. That Jesus is coming in a taxi. He's coming quickly. He's coming as He comes. It will Things will speed up, as it were. But I was thinking about this today, that He's coming in a taxi, but right now in chapter 10, the taxi is idling. We're at a stop sign. We're at one of those important parenthetical pauses to the proceedings. This is the second one, the second interim interruption to the impending indictments. And so tonight we have a lot to talk about in chapter 10, in this parenthetical pause. Uh, Three things specifically, I'll tell you ahead of time, that I want to cover. Number one, the identity of the strong angel. There's a strong angel in this chapter, and, and John goes to great lengths to describe him to us. So we want to find out who he is. Secondly, the meaning of the mystery of God. And thirdly, the contents of the little book. If you were here Sunday, we already talked a little bit about this strong angel comes holding a little book that's open. So we want to talk about what is that little book? What what are the contents therein? Now, the narrative can get difficult. As we learned in chapter 9, it's brutal. The fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments. One, as I've said over and over, is actual, is real, will come upon the earth. Chapter 9 tells us that those two trumpets, number 5 and number 6, will unleash demonic attacks on the planet, the likes of which this world has never seen. Demon locusts, killing angels, armies of 200 million riders atop lion-headed, fire-breathing, serpent-tailed horses. And if you wonder, what are those lion-headed fire-breathing, serpent-tailed horses, my answer is they are lion-headed, fire-breathing, serpent-tailed horses. (laughs) They are what they are. Don't try to make it into something else. Unless John says, oh, by the way, this is just a picture of something else. It is what it is. Now, it was pointed out to me last Wednesday night, and I need to share this with you, that, that this creature that we read about, these horses with lion's heads... Serpent tails, fire breathing. Again, very interesting that in Greek mythology, there is a creature called a chimera. And the chimera is a fire breathing, lion headed, serpent tailed creature. The only slight difference is rather than being a horse, as this is described as a horse with a lion's head, the chimera has a goat's body. But still, the parallel there. It's a little unsettling. It's almost as if you, you might wonder, and someone might bring up reading this, well, that's just the chimera, if you know about Greek mythology. Is John just tapping into myths? Is John just making this stuff up? I mean, come on. We know about the chimera. He just describes something that is so much like that. Or maybe John is on the island of Patmos, and, and at this point in writing down the things in the Revelation, the sun's a little high, and his head's a little hot, and he's just remembering stuff he learned when he was a kid, and he's throwing stuff in there. And people question the Bible that way. Let me remind you of something that John saw what he saw. 
And what John saw was the real deal. He actually saw these creatures. But in describing them, I'm reminded that Satan is a master counterfeiter. He's a master confuser. By the way, chimera also means illusory, imagined, or misleading. Which is exactly what the devil does. And he will take these these things that are in Scripture and he'll throw out other ideas or other things that will confuse. He does it with different beasts. I mean, who believes in dragons, really? I know it's in Lord of the Rings, and I know they make movies about them, but who really believes in dragons? And yet the Bible talks about an old dragon in the book of Revelation. Well, yeah, it's a picture of of the devil. Nobody believes in giants. Come on, Jack and the giant and the beanstalk and all that. That's just stuff stuff of fairy tales. Well, the Bible talks about Nephilim, doesn't it? And Leviathan and Behemoth and, and these great creatures, dinosaur types that are mentioned in the Bible. Well, the devil tries to confuse and to counterfeit all of these things. That's what he does. But remember that counterfeits, to be counterfeits, are always based on the genuine article. The devil can't create, so he copies. And not only with mythological creatures. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. How many false Christs have come and gone already in 2,000 years? And how many even in the world today are rising up? I'm He, follow Me! And there will be more. Because the devil counterfeits. So, my word on the chimera, on this mythological lion-headed creature, is simply, don't be confused by a conjured chimera or a counterfeit Christ. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. And you'll be okay. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Take Him at His word. Trust Him. Now, with that said, again, I want to try to unpack these three questions or three issues tonight. Question number one, what is the identity of the strong angel? So let's take a look at this. Verse one, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Watch this, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. We talked about the seven peals of thunder on Sunday. Won't go back over it tonight. And when the seven peals of thunder, okay, it's the Holy Spirit, I'll give you that much, had spoken, I was about to write, John says. I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will no be delayed no longer. Now in this, what John has just done is given us seven descriptors of this strong angel. 
So let's look at them and see if they can give us some clue as to the identity. Number one, he's clothed with a cloud. Clothed with a cloud. Revelation 1.7, John said of Jesus, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, He said that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And this strong angel is clothed with a cloud. Hmm. Now, think this through with me. When does Jesus say the Son of Man comes clothed with a cloud? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Matthew 24, 29. You can read it again. After the tribulation, at the conclusion, He comes with the clouds. And this pause in Revelation chapter 10 is just into the second half of the tribulation. It is not after. It's not at the end. We're not there yet. But, but that's okay. Let's, let's, let's go a little further. I mean, this is parenthetical, right? So in the parenthetical, it's possible, some would argue, that John is looking ahead in time. It's unlikely because, again, this is not at the end. And John, even after all of this, we will find out John still has some prophesying to do. There's still some work to be done. But he's coming with the clouds, or, or this one is comes with he's clothed with a cloud coming down out of heaven. And secondly, the rainbow is upon his head. The rainbow, that that picture of grace, of of our covenant keeping God. And by the way, notice it's not just a rainbow; it is the rainbow. John uses a definite article, the word "the" here. And the only the rainbow that we've seen so far in the revelation is the rainbow around the throne. So if he's coming with the rainbow around his head, there is a connection, I believe, with the rainbow that is around the throne. Revelation 4.3 He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Hmm. So here he comes in the clouds with a rainbow around his head and at a minimum, at a minimum, the strong angel's rainbow testifies to the covenant keeping of God. That we're reminded of the faithfulness of God when we see this rainbow. But keep going. His face was like the sun. Okay, that's compelling. Right, because back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16... His face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's Jesus. And in John's revelation of Jesus, when he sees Him, when he describes Him, he describes Him the same way. Face shining like the sun. But did anybody else's face shine in the Bible? Moses, of course. Moses goes up on the mount. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35 tells the story. He goes up on the mount. He's in the presence of the Lord. He comes down and he has these long, white, curly locks. No, I'm sorry, that's Charlton Heston. He comes down and his face is shining. And it is so bright because 
Well, Moses had been in the presence of God. His face is shining so bright it terrifies the Israelites. In fact, the Bible tells us he started having to wear a veil. Because it was freaking him out. Like, cover up, man. We don't want to look at that. And so we're told in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from speaking with God, he always put on a veil over his face to cut down on the brightness. And when, when he went up before the Lord, he would take the veil off in the presence of the Lord. So the face shining, well, this strong angel's face is shining like the sun, so is Jesus. But when we see Moses coming down from the presence of, of God, he comes back shining. And that's what happens when people are in the presence of of the Lord. See, see, glory gets on you. God's glory spills, I guess. Got on to Moses, and his glory does that with go, those who go before the Lord. I love what Paul says about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says, But we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently, note this, at the end of what was fading away. That's kind of new information because when we read in Exodus, what we read is the people are saying, put a veil on your face because you're scaring us. But Paul says the reason actually Moses put the veil on his face was that people wouldn't see the glory fading. Wouldn't see it trailing off. He's losing it. He's got to go back up to God for a recharge. (laughs) We're different than that. We are not like that. We all, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is, He is transforming us now. Here and now, tonight. And the glory that we are being transformed into, it's not fading. It's growing. Now, you look at me and I look at you and we're like, where's the glory in that? Listen, God looks and sees glory on you. He sees the sun shining in your face. In my face. The more time we spend with God, the more the glory shows up. And there is a day when this transformation from glory to glory when we will stand in the glorious presence of God. And I think in that day we're all going to be pretty shiny-faced by the glory of the Lord. His glory gets on you. Well, this strong angel has a face that was like the sun, rainbow on his head. He's he's coming in a cloud. His feet were like pillars of fire. We're still in verse 1. His feet were like pillars of fire. Now, this is a slight departure from the description of Jesus, if you go back and forth between Revelation 10 and 1, compare the description of Jesus and then compare this description of the strong angel. This is slightly different. In fact, so is the sun. In this one it says, his face was like the sun shining. But in chapter 1 it says, his face was like the sun shining in all its strength. So in that persona, Jesus' face is shining full blast. This one... It's like the sun. But in this one also, his feet were like pillars of fire. Listen, Revelation 1.15 says, His feet, speaking of Jesus, were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. But this strong angel, his feet are like pillars of fire. Now, pillars of fire, that does bring something to mind, doesn't it? The Shekinah glory of God. As we read about in Exodus 13 and 14, 
or told about in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 19, says, You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way in which they were to go. So we're reminded, pillars of fire, man, that's someone who's following the Lord. That, that's the lead of the Lord. That was the grace of God taking the Israelites through the wilderness. And so for this strong angel to have feet that look like pillars of fire, well, that brings to mind God's provision, God's leading, even through wilderness times. Well, this strong angel has all that going on, and he comes down and he puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And that indicates global authority. He comes with a message, and he comes with power, and he comes with authority. And so some say, well, look at all these things. It's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus, this strong angel. I mean, with that kind of authority, only Jesus has that kind of authority over the earth, right? Right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. Here's the problem that I have with thinking that the strong angel is Jesus, and I'm starting to to tip my hand as to what I think here, if this is Jesus, we're out of order. Because Jesus doesn't set foot back on planet Earth until, again, after the tribulation of those days. When He comes in Revelation 19, in the glorious appearing, or as Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. But here we are at this midpoint, or just past the midpoint of the seven year tribulation, and here's this being who's already come set feet down on the earth, sea and land. Now look at that and think, that's not when Jesus comes. I mean, unless Jesus is coming early, He just couldn't stay away. So maybe maybe we're in the middle of the... See, now I thought this was funny. Today, Rachel said this. During the seven years of tribulation on earth, where's the church? Okay, you can shout it out if you want. It's good news. We're in heaven. We're on a heavenly honeymoon. We're with Jesus. Rachel said, I wouldn't think it would be very cool for the bridegroom to leave me on the honeymoon. But here he is. He comes down to the earth. The bride's in heaven. Where's the groom? Well, I, I got to go to work, honey. I got something to take care of here. It's out of order. It, it doesn't fit the pattern. But then we come to the next description. And this is up in verse 3. It says, His voice is like a lion's roar. Lion's roar. That word for roar is literally that guttural, throaty bellow. You know, that you hear in the, in the pipes of a lion, that deep and throbbing. And this to me is one of the most persuasive arguments that those give who believe that this strong angel is in fact Jesus. The lion's roar. I mean, if you go to the Hebrew Scriptures, Jeremiah 25, verse 30, the Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against His fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Or Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, they will walk after the Lord and He will roar like a lion. Indeed, He will roar and His sons will come trembling from the west. 
Or Joel chapter 3 verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the sons of Israel. Amos chapter 3 verse 8. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So the Hebrew Scriptures connect this roaring lion, this bellowing sound, to the voice of God. So here comes this strong angel crying out as when a lion roars. And you might say, whoa, Jesus, lion of the tribe of Judah. It's got to be Jesus. What does Jesus' voice sound like in the Revelation? Sound of many waters. We read that more than once. Revelation 1.15, His voice was like the sound of many waters. Ezekiel prophesied the same. Verse 2 of chapter 43, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. This is the return of Jesus He's describing. And His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. Revelation 14, verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. What a beautiful description of the voice of Jesus. So I know I'm going back and forth here on you a little bit. And you're like, okay, is it Jesus? Is it not Jesus? Is this just a strong angel or is this... Jesus, but in the person of an angel, let me ask this question, why, if this is Jesus, would He appear as an angel? Why would He do that at this time? The Hebrew word for angel, malak, Greek word, angelos, it's messenger. And we, we know, we see, when you look back in the Hebrew Scriptures, the malak Yahweh. Remember the malak Yahweh we've talked about? The angel of the Lord. And that we see many times in the Older Testament, we see what are called Christophanies, where the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He comes on the scene. Well, how do you know it's Jesus? Because He accepts worship, and no angel does that. Because He speaks with the authority of God. We see the Malach Yahweh. I do believe that is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, I read this and I thought, wow, this is intriguing to me, that some suggest that here, because we're in the tribulation, and the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble, that God has now returned to the same kind of dispensational style that He had with the patriarchs. Dispensational style. I used the word dispensation a couple of weeks ago, and there were several people who looked at me like, Dispen, what? The same style. The dispensation is simply a season in which God functions a certain way with a certain group of people. He functioned a certain way with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a dispensation. And then He functioned a different way with Moses in the Mosaic dispensation with the people of the children of Israel at that time. He functions a different way in the church age. This is a dispensation. And so some say, hey, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the the final seven of Daniel. So in this seven year period, God is returning to Old Testament style interaction 
because of the children of Israel. Therefore, Jesus has now gone back to acting like or taking on the persona of a strong angel of the Malach Yahweh. I find that theory fascinating. But it's still out of order. It it, it still doesn't fit. Once, Listen, once the covertness of Jesus is revealed, He doesn't go back under a veil. Has He done that with any of you? You give your life to Jesus and all of a sudden He goes back and disappears again? See, Paul says when you turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. When you give your life to Jesus, you know who He is. Now, you may try to fool yourself. You may be in rebellion at some point or another. But you know who Jesus is. And once revealed, Jesus is then no longer concealed. And remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus revealed. It's not the shroud of His secrecy. He's not going back into hiding. He has already been revealed as the Christ. He is, as John wrote, the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the little lamb slain, the living one, the root and descendant of David. He is the Amen. He doesn't suddenly go back into hiding under the persona of an angel. Now there was a reason it was that way in the Hebrew Scriptures. We understand that. God interacting with Israel, working with Israel. It wasn't time for Israel or the world to see Christ the Messiah. Jesus was being prophesied, taught about, but then revealed when He came to the earth. And especially now as we're studying, as we're reading in the Revelation, this is is revelation, so there's no going back. Now some people would say, well, yes, but Israel doesn't know. Therefore, to Israel, maybe he should still be the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. To which I reply, no, no. Israel knows. Israel knows by now. And I will prove that to you in just a minute. Note a couple other things about this strong angel and why I do not believe that this is Jesus. This is a strong angel, an amazing angel, a mighty angel, but he is, note in verse 1, another strong angel. Alon, Ishkaron, Angelon. Alon from the Greek word alos, which we've looked at recently, it just means another of the same kind. This is important, so stay with me on this just for a minute. Another of the same kind. So John is writing, I am now seeing another strong angel. So if this is another of the same kind, we should see another strong angel somewhere else in Revelation, shouldn't we? In fact, we should already have seen a strong angel if this is another strong angel. Right? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, turn back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. John says, And I saw a strong angel. Exact same phrase, Ishkaron Angelon. A strong angel. There's your first strong angel. Then, back in Revelation 10 verse 1, And I saw another, Alon, Ishkaron Angelon. Another strong angel. So now this is the second strong angel that John has seen. Another of the same kind. So if the strong angel of Revelation chapter 5, verse 2 is not Jesus, neither is the, the angel of Revelation 10, verse 1. 
There's one more strong angel in the Revelation. You can look ahead or just take my word for it. Revelation 18.21 tells us, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So we see that this strong angel in Revelation 10 verse 1 is like that strong angel in Revelation 5 verse 2. And then there's the third strong angel in Revelation 18 verse 21. Three specifically strong angels. Perhaps a class of angels. I don't know for certain. But they're angels nonetheless. And as we look at such strong and mighty angels, now think about this. What does this tell us about Jesus? These are strong. These are amazing. These are mighty beings. When I read the description here in Revelation chapter 10, it is mind-boggling how powerful this angel is. What does that say of Jesus Christ? And how strong He is? And how mighty He is? You think this angel's strong? He is subservient. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is much better than the angels. Any of them. What about the four-faced cherubim that we saw in Revelation 4? Jesus is more powerful. The most amazing angel you can point to in Scripture, Jesus is greater. By far. Because there is none like Him. There is a seventh description of this strong angel that I think seals the deal in our understanding is that He swears by Him who lives forever and ever. Look at verse 6. Looking at verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. That is, in taking an oath, in swearing by another, not by himself, but by another. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. So this strong angel is now swearing by the Creator. Not by himself. Now, Granted, the Hebrew pastor, and some make this argument, in Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrew pastor taught us that God, since there was no one greater, swore by Himself. So God can do that. God can swear by the Creator as the Creator, right? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation to end every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed or guaranteed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of the hope of the take hold of the hope set before us. Two things, the Hebrew writer says both the Word and the person of God. He gives His Word and then He swears on Himself so that we can trust Him. And He swears on Himself because there's no one greater. But note, in Revelation 10, this angel doesn't swear by himself. He swears by Him who created. He swears by another. As in another who is greater. But Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by Him, Jesus All things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, but this strong angel swears by Jesus. 
swears by the Creator. And Jesus said in John 15.20, a servant is not greater than his master. And what are angels but ministering servants? So this is a servant of the Lord. I do not believe it is the Lord. He's strong and he's mighty, but he's not Jesus. Some suggest maybe he's Michael. Maybe that's who this is. Possible. Maybe, although Michael is named in Revelation 12, so I'm not sure why he wouldn't be named here, but maybe it is Michael. He's an awesome angel. Michael's name even means who is like God. Michael is godly. But, you might ask this question after all of this. And by the way, it's just my intro. If the strong angel isn't Jesus... Why did we just spend all this time looking into his character traits? Why did we do this? Consider him and take all this time to do it. Because of this reason, listen, this strong angel is like Jesus. He's like Jesus. Which to me makes him worth looking at. Matthew 10.25, Jesus said, It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. And the slave that he become like his master. Why is his face shining like the sun? Because he's in the presence of the one who shines like the sun in all his strength. Why does he look? Why is there a rainbow around? Because he's just come from the throne. Why does he look the way he looks and do the things he does? Because he's a servant of Jesus Christ. So he looks like Jesus. And those who serve Jesus will always look like Jesus. You want to be Christ-like? This is a Christ-like angel. And if you want to be Christ-like, the key is stay in the presence of God. Just stay in His presence. Talk to Him. Listen to Him. Be with Him. Give time to Him on a daily basis. You want to be Christ-like? You will not be Christ-like wandering your own way, but following Him. As John said in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. So this strong angel is Christ-like, but I do not believe He is Christ. And He swore by Him who creates who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. What did he swear? Keep going in verse 6. That there will be delay no longer. What does that mean? Well, the word delay there is very simply chronos. Where we get the word chronometer. Chronos meaning time. Literally translated, what the angel just declared is there will be time no longer. In other words, time's up. Pencils down. Turn your papers in. Test is over. No more delay. And what's going on here is from the seventh trumpet forward, and the seventh trumpet will sound, we'll read about it in chapter 11, from the seventh trumpet forward, it's all over. It's all done. But but Rick, aren't there aren't there bold judgments that come after that? 
And aren't there more things that will take place? Yes. But it's all over. What I mean by this, what I think is indicated here, is the time for delay is no longer. Time's up. What he's saying is, the bold judgments that are coming are not like the trumpet judgments or the seal judgments. Because as we've talked about, those first two sets of judgments are both judgment and opportunity. Judgment and warning. The bold judgments are pure punishment. Full-blown wrath, no more opportunity. The time is up. The test is over. It's pass or fail. The time to delay is no more. But in the days, verse 7, of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. As he preached to his servants, the prophets. Okay, interesting. When the seventh trumpet sounds, which again, we'll, we'll hear, we'll read about in Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15. When that trumpet sounds, the mystery of God is finished. What is the mystery of God? What does that mean? He says the mystery of God is finished. Now note that, pay attention to that. The word is eteleste, which is the same word as teleos or tetelestai. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? It's finished! Everything that needed to be done was done in that moment. It is finished, he cried. John 19.30 And the work at that moment was finished. But the mystery to be revealed has yet to be finished, is not finished, even today. This is a mystery ongoing. It's a mystery that is not yet fully Received. So here's the question we need to ask. If we want to understand this mystery, because people have said all kinds of things about it. And anytime you get into Revelation and someone sees a word like mystery, they start making up all kinds of stuff. I could tell you that the mystery here, the mystery, what mystery is revealed but unfinished? At least in terms of being received. The simple answer is it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets and the word preached there is euangelizo, gospel. Gospel, evangelized. The mystery has been fully evangelized. The gospel's out. The mystery is finished. But it's more specific than that. Because right now, tonight, the mystery is finished with you. Is it a mystery that Jesus loves you? It's a marvel. But you know He does. You know because He proved it on the cross. The mystery of the Gospel. In fact, the Bible uses the mystery, the mysterion, in the New Testament, to describe Christ in you. That's a mystery. The church was a mystery to the Hebrew prophets. Pre-Jesus, it was all a mystery. But in Jesus, the mystery becomes revealed. And so we sit here tonight and we go, I know what the mystery is. 
The mystery is Christ in me. The mystery is, is salvation by Jesus Christ, by His sacrifice. It's the Gospel. That's it. Well, then why is it not finished until here? See, this is a mystery that's been revealed to you, revealed to me, but is yet unfinished. So you've got to read the end of the sentence. Then the mystery of God is finished as He preached to His servants, the prophets. His servants, the prophets. Let's put this together. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 tells us, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now, Paul says, 2,000 years ago, now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience and faith. The mystery revealed and yet unfinished. So we've got to go further. And I encourage you to turn in your Bibles back to 1 Peter. It's just a couple of books back. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6. 1 Peter 1.6 In this, Peter writes, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now watch this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. As He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, it was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you, who evangelized you and Galizo, who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we're getting closer, but this, again, mystery is revealed. The one, once you give your life to Jesus, the mystery is revealed. The veil is lifted. You know the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved by faith in Jesus. It's wonderful, but the mystery revealed is yet unfinished. Why? <laughs> well, to whom were the ancient prophets prophesying? Israel. Israel. Israel is absolutely key to understanding major sections of Revelation and understanding what God is up to. Listen, the mystery being talked about here has always been, how is God going to bring salvation through the Jewish people to the Gentiles and then back to the Jews again? How's that going to work? And it's the mystery, my friends, of the grafting in. This is the mystery that is yet unfinished. 
It's unfinished. Hey, I've been grafted in. I'm part of the deal now. Praise the Lord, I've got a lineage. I'm part of the olive tree. I'm the wild graft that's been now brought in. But if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you might just notate that and go back and think it through and read those chapters through, Paul reveals the mystery in Israel and what's taken place there. And I'm going to read to you Romans 11, verse 11. Listen to this. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. That's how it works. And I love it. What a great plan. You're my chosen people. I love you. I come to you. I die for you. You're going to reject me. So I'm going to go to the Gentiles. But they're going to become a people. And you're going to look at that and go, Hey, what about us? Well, I went back in. And they will be grafted back in. Paul writes, If their transgression is riches for the world, that is the, the Gentiles, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and inasmuch as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Romans 11.25, Paul said, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this what? Mystery. And here it is. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Here's the mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is when the mystery of God is finished. Revelation chapter 10, look back at it. The mystery of God is finished here. When all Israel, alive on the earth, following now the completion, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, my friends, it's when the last Gentile gets saved. And it's done. It's done. Time's up. And I believe that is exactly what is being described here in chapter 10. We get to this point in the tribulation, time's up. The last Gentile has just believed in Jesus and it's over. There will be no more. And after this point we see again and again a lack of repentance on the part of the people on earth. But the last Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles, it's over. And now suddenly the mystery is finished. The mystery of God following the fullness of the Gentiles as the Jewish people are fully grafted back in to belief in Jesus and salvation. The mystery of God is finished as He preached to His servants, the prophets. Now what's really cool about this mystery is it's more fully explained in the interlude we'll get to in Revelation chapter 12. In fact, it's beautifully explained. Revelation 12 is going to give us a panorama of Israel and God's plan with Israel from beginning to end. We'll see it then. But this is the time when all Israel knows Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. Mystery finished. Then they know. I will say this, for those who try to equate the seventh trumpet 
with the last trumpet, with the rapture of the church, I say no, because this moment is not about the church. The church isn't even here. This is about Israel. The trumpets are for Israel. The final wake-up call to Israel. And we talked about last week, probably the week before, when we got to chapter seven, we began to, or chapter eight, we began to look at the trumpets, and we talked about trumpets are a Jewish thing. The shofar, the silver trumpet. These are Jewish in nature, and this is a final wake-up call to Israel. Last chance. And Israel on earth, the surviving remnant, will all get saved. They're finally going to tune in to the sound of the trumpet. And salvation is going to come to the Jewish people. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Go take the little book. He's holding that little open book. Right? That Bibliridion. Little book. What are the contents? Third question. What are the contents of the little book? Now, let me point out here in verse 8, I believe that the voice, which is the same voice who told him to seal up the things back in verse 4, the voice from heaven, said seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them, same voice. Because this is the voice he said, I heard from heaven. And this voice now is saying, go take the book which is in the open hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. And I think that that voice is likely Jesus. That probably is Jesus now commanding from heaven. And I love that John doesn't even hesitate to obey. I think I'd be a little trepidatious to go take a book out of an angel's hand. Um, (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Strong Angel, sir. He said, "He he did I can I can I take the book?" <laughs> John goes right over and he takes the book, and I'm reminded that Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." So the voice says, "Go get the book, John." He goes to get the book. Verse nine. I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, "Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter." But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I think of all the mornings that I tried to enjoy my childhood with returning to a bowl of Apple Jacks. And it was sweet in my mouth, and it was bitter in my stomach. Got to a point where I couldn't do that anymore. Well, John is now, this is weird, in this interlude. Now, just because it's parenthetical doesn't mean it's not happening. So in this interlude, he goes up to the angel, he takes the book, the angel says, eat it, (laughs) eat my words. He takes it and he swallows it, but as it goes into his mouth, mm, so sweet and yet there's a bitterness this is what God's word does please understand this is this bitter sweetness the Bible is bittersweet God's word is bittersweet now I'm not saying that that's the contents of the little book we'll get there in just a second but the word of God is always bittersweet 
Job said in Job 23 verse 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How true is that? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the deal. This is our necessary food. This is more important than any food we will put into our mouths, down our gullets, and into our bellies. This is our necessary food. I love that phrase. And then David said, in Psalm 19, a very impactful section of Scripture for me. Because this is the, this is the word the Lord gave me when He said, I want you to teach. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, they're right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's the Word of God. Sweet as honey. Better than my necessary food. David says in Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15.16, a verse that Les and I have battled over for years, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Remember the first time Les said, God gave me that verse. And I said, "Uh uh-uh, because God gave me that verse. He's like, no, God gave you Psalm 19. What? What would you say? I said, I'm older. Rub it in. (laughs) So satisfying. So sweet. The Word of God is our necessary food. You know this. It's nourishing. It's strengthening. It's filling, and yet it always leaves you hungry for more. It's comforting. The Word of God, it is so tasty to read and to hear and to heed. Revelation 1.3, it is such a blessing. Remember what he said? Blessed are all who read this and hear this and heed the things written in it for the time is near. The book of Revelation comes with that wonderful blessing. But with the blessing comes the bitterness. It's a hand-in-hand deal. And if you have walked with Jesus any amount of time, if you study the Bible, you know there's a bitterness. Oh, not going in. Not in your reception of it. That's nothing but sweet. But once it gets inside of you, once it begins to work, it does bring about bitterness. Why? (laughs) Why? Because you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal life and eternal death for those who reject it. That's bitter. When you start to really process what this means, oh, what it means to me to know Jesus and to be saved and to be secure for all eternity, oh, that's so sweet. And then I start to see faces and think of names and recognize people who do not accept this sweet word and in my belly it becomes a bitterness. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus said 
Quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed up the scroll, Luke chapter 4, handed it back to the attendant, sat down in the synagogue in Nazareth, looked around and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Good news. The favorable year of the Lord. It's here. It's now. You know what Jesus did though? He left off the bitter aftertaste. He quoted Isaiah 61 verses 1 and halfway through 2. He left the last last part of verse 2 out. Which reads, And the day of vengeance of our God. Bitterness. The good news of the Gospel is so sweet. The rejection of it is so bitter. Why did Jesus leave it out? Because it was the beginning of the favorable year of the Lord, the dispensation of grace, the church age, the time when God was going to pull out the stops and say, I'm pouring out my spirit on all mankind. I'm bringing my word of truth. I'm going to save anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. The favorable year. And Jesus was starting that. But you know what? We're at the end. He began it. Sweet words. We're at the end. We are far nearer the bitter aftertaste than the sweet beginnings. Cheryl and I talk about this all the time. There is a bitterness in the belly of the follower of Jesus. No words are more sweet than the words of God and none more bitter. As John finds out, Now again, this is not the seven-sealed scroll of Revelation chapter 5. It's not the Biblion, it's the Bibliridion. So what were the contents of this scroll? And hold this thought, the sweet and sour, the sweet and bitter thought. What are the contents in this particular little scroll? Are you saying this is the Bible? No. Well, no. (laughs) Perhaps partially. This is another one of those things, as with the mystery, as with the strong angel, people look at this and they come up with all kinds of bizarreities. But we can ask the question, and I think have a high degree of certainty with the answer, that what was in the little sweet scroll that John found to become so bitter is that this little scroll contains some, if not all, of the rest of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is from this point forward. Everything prophesied. Everything taught. That's why it's a little book. It's not that big. It's not as big as the entire Bible. It's certainly not as big as the, as the title deed to planet Earth, that first scroll in Revelation 5. It's the rest of the prophecies of this book. Now, why would I say that or come up with that? Well, I'm not coming up with it. I just note that at the very end here in verse 11, they said to me again, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Eat this, take it in, and you need to prophesy it. So what John receives, he now has to prophesy. And what does John prophesy after Revelation 10? Revelation 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, and possibly First and Second and Third John. It's everything after that. And if it's anything before that, that's possible as well. There may be more of Scripture, more of the prophetic word that was in this little book. But I can guarantee you 
Because John has to prophesy this again, that this little book at minimum contains the rest, <laughs> the rest of the prophecies that John will bring in the Revelation. Matthew 13.52 Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Much of the revelation of Jesus Christ is old. That is, has been prophesied before. We've been over a lot of these things. And you look back to the Hebrew Scriptures, you see things that were previously prophesied and John is now confirming But we're starting to get into sections of Revelation that will be revealing things that were never prophesied before. Things that are to come. Things that are new. John is like that head of household. He's bringing out old things and new things. So he's about to prophesy this and he has to. Because there's a bitterness in his belly. This word bitter, epikranthos, It means to, get this, embitter, to anger, or to cause indignance. So this is a bitterness that, that, this brings some emotion. This is an aching belly that is emotionally driven. Now the Greeks had it right when they talked about compassion. Anytime you see the word compassion in the scriptures, the Greek word is splachna. It's guts, bowels. When it says Jesus had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd, it literally is Jesus had guts for the people. Because the Greeks understood that the guts, that's where you feel it. You know, when you say, oh man, I just, I just feel her in, her, in my heart. No, you don't. You feel her in your bowels, man. It's just not as romantic to say it that way. I think the old Stephen Curtis Chapman song where he said, this could be love or it could be the flu. <laughs> Because I feel, you know, i got the butterflies in my stomach. That's a little more accurate. But this is an embitterness. This is an indignance in the belly. And by the way, it's an aching belly that Ezekiel, the prophet, would understand. And I want to read you one more thing. I know the hour's late. Hang with me a few more minutes. Ezekiel chapter 2. You can turn there or just listen. But what we see in Revelation 10 is an absolute parallel to Ezekiel chapter 2 and into chapter 3. What happens to Ezekiel now happens to John. What's taking place with John has previously taken place, a very similar incidence with Ezekiel. So read along or listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 2, picking up in verse 7. Ezekiel 2, 7, But you shall speak my words, God speaking to Ezekiel the prophet. You shall speak my words to them. Listen, whether they listen or not. Which is always my answer to someone who says, well, I've been telling them about Jesus, but they're not listening. So, what does that have to do with it? Whether they listen or not, God says, for they're rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. A little book. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. 
And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Note that. You're trying to tell people about Jesus and they will not listen to you. You know why? Because they won't listen to Him. You are not the problem. You are not the issue. Your presentation is not what's wrong. It's that if they won't listen to you, it's because they won't listen to Him. But He goes on. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces. And your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in this place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another and the sounds of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. Watch this. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. This sweet word got into his stomach and into his heart and Ezekiel writes his reaction, his response was rage. He is angered by what the Word has done in him, by what he knows the Word to declare. Angered because this Word in him that he has to preach now will not be received. Bitterness in the belly. And it says in verse 15, Then I came to the exiles who lived at the river Chabar in Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. It's just bugging them. Just sitting there talking about the message of the Lord, and they're going, I'm so sick and tired of this guy. And he is filled with this this rage. Listen, part of the bitterness that comes in by the Word of God is the reality that it causes consternation among people who are rebellious. You know it's going to. You know this is going to upset people. You know if you try to speak this honey-sweet Word of God, that you have experienced as sweet to the taste. You try to bring this and you know some people will reject it and they will reject you and me right along with it. Not to mention the fact that the Word itself gives that bellyache to those who take it in because you know the truth. You know what it says. Well, Rick, you said if we read Revelation, we'd be blessed. Not exactly. Not exactly. Revelation 1.3 again says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
You want to be blessed in the study of this book? You need to heed the things of this book. And to heed the things of this book is to take it in to the point, I probably should have told you this several weeks ago, to the point that it makes you bitter. I'm not talking about wormwood bitterness. I'm not talking about, you know, just a vitriolic anger and hatred and spite. I'm talking about that it starts to make you ache. That until we take in the Word of God to the point of aching, well, let me put it this way. What do you do when you take in something sweet and it becomes bitter in your belly? You want to get it out. I mentioned eating Apple Jacks. I, one time when I was a kid, had a bowl of tricks. When there were those little, little balls, bright colored, neon colored tricks. I ate the bowl of tricks. Didn't know at the time I was eating the bowl of tricks, I was on the front end of the flu. That was the most neon puke I have ever. <laughs> but I'm making a point. It was sweet going in. The stomach ache was awful. I had to get it out. Get the word out. Until it causes the bitterness that you've got to get it out. It's not having its full effect. You haven't fully taken it in. This is a sweet and bitter book. The bitterness comes. And what do they say? Back in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. They said to me, what? You must prophesy again. You've taken in this sweet word. It's bitter. You've got to get it out. The only way to deal with the bitterness, prophesy again, get it out. Speak the word. You can't keep the good book down. Got to bring it up. This book, and specifically Revelation, but the entire Bible, it makes me feel things I don't want to feel. Now, I love the Word of God. I am passionate. You know this about the Word of God. But it makes me feel things I'd rather not feel. I read things in it and I go, Man, I, I, I thought I had pride licked. I was pretty proud of myself. It makes me feel things for other people that to be completely honest and selfish, I don't want to feel. I have had people say, I'm not coming to listen to Revelation anymore. It's too upsetting. I get that. But rather than not coming and listening, you know what you do? You take it in and you get it out. You must prophesy again. You must speak the word again. But the whole point of this is we've got to feel it. If we don't feel it, we haven't gotten it. Charles Reary, I love how he put this. He said, the point of this interlude, chapter 10, during which John was commanded to assimilate these prophecies before he wrote them, The point is simply that it is necessary for the prophet of God to let the Word of God affect him first before he ministers it to others. That's taking in the sweet book. It becomes bitter. It's ministering to you. It's affecting you. It's causing you to feel such that you've got to now get it out. Take it in and feel it. But if this Word doesn't develop in us compassion and kindness and a a burden for the lost, then I I haven't heard this Word. You know, the Bible is a burden. I, I first heard the phrase used, and maybe I was out of touch, maybe it was used before this, but I first heard the phrase used in the early 90s 
I heard a friend say, yeah, the Lord really put a burden on my heart. And I'm like, say what? A burden on your heart? God doesn't burden people. Yes, He does. Oh, yes, He does. And He does put burdens. And and I, I learned to actually pray that. Lord, give me a burden for the lost. Cause me to carry this for a while. You ever pray that? Father, burden my heart, embitter my belly. Get into my guts so that I have to prophesy again. And if others refuse to listen, prophesy again. You know what's coming. Prophesy again. You're aware of the finality of these things. Prophesy again. If it aches in your belly, prophesy again because the mystery of God as revealed in Jesus Christ is just about to be finished. Father, we're this close. I'm convinced of that. And I don't say this to... (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I say this to upset every one of us. Because the truth is, Lord Jesus, we should be upset. We should be embittered against the enemy and against the lies and against, Lord, the deceit that is in this world. We should be upset. Our belly should ache at the things we see. We should have a burden for those who we absolutely adore that are walking dead right now, that are lost. And in these last days, Lord, I don't feel like we can afford to dance around that anymore. I don't think we ever had that luxury, but it is, it is being brought home to me more now than ever that we have a burden. A people saved, a people saying, yes, Lord Jesus, come. But who at the same time know what that means for this world. So Jesus with all grace and compassion and gentleness and kindness and love, I pray that You will cause Your Word to make us prophesy again. Until we have spread out as far as we possibly can from this little spot on North Whidbey Island, I pray that we would have a burden for the lost. Lord, use us as instruments of Your will, as mouthpieces, as watchmen and watchwomen on the wall. Use us for Your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.